This is the Mental Health Movement Podcast, Voice for the Voiceless, a weekly podcast hosted by Chris Milson, a podcast to help break the stigma of mental health and to remind everyone that it is okay to be not okay, and to remind those that they are never alone. Please also note that Chris is not a psychologist or psychiatrist and is speaking from research and experiences. Trigger warning for those for the possible explicit content and language. Hey guys, this is Chris, and before we get started with today's recording, um, I just want to acknowledge uh, three people who have recently passed away within the span of a couple of days who have had an impact on on my life in one way or another. Um, first of all, Bob Barker that we lost today as of August 26th, and also Terry Funk that we lost uh, the day before yesterday, I believe it was, and then, of course, um, Bray Wyatt. Uh, all wrestlers or two wrestlers and an actor on TV. Um, all of you guys have had an impact in my life one way or another. And from the bottom of my heart, thank you guys so much for all that you've done for us. And, um, you know, you kept, you kept me going as a little kid and, and growing up. So I do thank you for everything that you were able to give us on your time here with us. And uh quick shout out to the antisocial network, for allowing me to be part of their network as well. Um, and for those of uh, you who have been with me on this journey, thank you guys so much. Um, looking forward to hearing the reaction for this podcast. And until next time, guys, take care. What's up, Warriors, and welcome to another episode of the Mental Health Movement Podcast, Voice for the Voiceless. I am your host, Chris, and before we get uh, started with today's podcast, you know, I drop warnings uh, at the very beginning of every podcast of heavy content. Um, I think this is one of the heaviest uh, topics we've covered since probably uh, we did the Celebration of Life with Santi and George. Um, So... I just want to give everybody a heads up. This is a really heavy uh, episode, Um, really big trigger warning on content. Um, Today, I have a very special guest. She is one of the most genuine people I know. Um, She is a warrior, a fighter, and a survivor, and I think the world of her and today's podcast is probably one of the bravest things that she could possibly do in telling her story. And she's going to be sharing her story on uh, sexual assault. Um, We're going to include awareness. Um, We're going to include the statistics. And of course, we're going to share resources for all those uh, in due time. So let me bring in Judy. Judy, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing good. Thank you uh, so much again for coming on this podcast. I know this is something you've been wanting to share and just weren't really sure how to uh, to even begin so thank you again no problem i'm finally at the stage where i want to get it out there so i thank you for allowing me the opportunity yeah of course um before we get into your story you know i just kind of wanted to read some of the statistics that you were able to provide uh to me for our listeners uh just to put that out there and then we'll include the resources in there as well so every 68 seconds Someone in the United States is sexually assaulted in every nine minutes that victim is a child. Uh, one out of six women have been a victim or attempted uh, completed rape in their lifetime. Um, one out of every 33 men have been a victim of attempted or completed. And a majority of child victims are between the ages of 12 to 17 with 34% being under the age of 12. And from what you told me, you unfortunately fell into that category of being eight years old when your story began yeah and sadly out of every um about 25 out of every thousand perpetrators will end up in prison but it's not just children anyone can be a victim of sexual assault uh each year around 81,000 inmates are sexually assaulted or raped 60,000 children are victims of substantiated or uh, indicated sexual abuse about 434,000 Americans 12 and older have victims of sexual assault 
even the military, roughly 19,000 experienced unwanted sexual contact. Uh, nine out of every 10 victims of sexual assault are female. 48% were sleeping while their attacker attacked. 29% were traveling, uh, walking or jogging. 12% were at work. 7% were at school. Um, help is available 24 seven to anyone uh, at the National Sexual Assault Hotline. That number is 1-800-656-4673. And you may also find help at the National Organization for Victim Assistance at trinova.org. Wherever you wanna begin, Judy, um, I know you being in that category of being at such a young age, I know it was really hard uh, just to deal with and I couldn't imagine the trauma you have felt for your entire life. So whenever you want to start, wherever you want to start, no pressure on the timeline. So the floor is yours. Yeah. Um, like you mentioned, I unfortunately did fall into the category of the under 12 um, victims of sexual abuse, sexual assault. Um, many kids like myself spend lots of summers with their grandparents. Um, that was me. I spent pretty much every summer with my father's mom and his stepdad. Um, they had a neighbor who had a son, the son's name. Um, I'm going to change his name a little bit just to be nice, um, even though he has since passed away, thank God. Um, but we'll say his name was Fred. Um, had a daughter that was around my age. I hung out with her pretty much every day when I stayed at my grandparents' house and spent numerous, numerous nights over at my grandmother's neighbor's house with um, him and his mother and his daughter. And one summer, um, I was out riding bikes with his daughter. I fell and injured the inside of my left thigh area and just that evening, um, his daughter and I wanted to have a little camp out. So we slept out in a tent and being so young at this point, I was only seven. Um, being so young, he of course slept out in the tent with us. And, you know, with my thigh being injured and hurting, you know, he began to rub and touch the inner part of my thigh. And at that point in time, I'm seven. I mean, of course, I don't really think too much of it and think that it's wrong because here I think it's, you know, just an adult wanting to make sure that I'm okay. Um, didn't really put two and two together that that was the start of basically a living hell for me. Um, fast forward to the following January and that's when all kinds of shit started happening. Um, sorry if I like stutter yeah. a little bit here. Um, spent an evening over at his house. It was the night of January 8th, 1987. Um, his daughter had asked if I could stay over there. I was off school for some reason during this time period. I don't remember even if it was a weekend, but spent the night over there and laying in bed and his daughter and I shared a double bed whenever I'd spend the night over there. Um, and I remember the door to the bedroom opening and him walking in and again, he's just sitting on the edge of the bed and he's talking and he's saying random stuff that I don't even, I don't remember everything because of being eight years old that. And I think that with, it being so traumatic that it just, I basically wanted to block out and shut out a lot of it. Um, but I remember him, I only had a nightgown on. So of course I had a nightgown and my underwear on. And I remember him pushing my underwear to the side and beginning to touch me in areas that adults really should not be touching children. Um, I wanted to like scream and I started to like make noises and I had a hand placed over my mouth 
Um, I basically was threatened, told that if I screamed or made a sound that he would hurt me even more. Um, that's going further. Um, that's when he did penetrate me with his fingers. Um, and was doing that. I, at that point, I froze, couldn't scream, couldn't do anything. I remember tears rolling down my face, but I just laid there and did not want to move, didn't want to scream because I felt like the threat was real, that he would hurt me more. Um, he then, all of this of course, was happening while his daughter was laying next to us. I don't know if she woke up. Don't know if she knew what was going on. Um, later on in life, I found out that a lot of this had happened to her throughout her life as well from him. Um, so I don't know if she was just afraid and if she's been threatened in the past too. And that's why she didn't say anything. Um, but I do remember his body like climbing on top of me. He attempted to penetrate with his penis. Um, I say attempted because by the grace of God, I don't know. Like I had angels or somebody watching over me. I'm not sure what happened, but he was unable to fully perform that duty. Um, however, just the thought of him rubbing himself against me in that area with his penis to this day still makes me sick to my stomach. Yeah. Um, but when he was done, um, I, he ejaculated somehow. Um, when he was done, I remember him taking his hand that had semen on it and smearing it across my face and calling me a dirty little bitch and walking out of the room. And like, I just laid there and didn't know what to do from then on. Um, I could have easily got up and walked over to my grandparents' house. Um, they always left the door unlocked in the event that I needed to go back over. But for some reason, I stayed until the next morning. Um, I got up and went out to the kitchen, was offered breakfast by this monster. And he acting like nothing happened and that everything was perfectly fine. Um, I wouldn't look at him, didn't even talk to his daughter. I just said I needed to go home because my parents were coming to get me. And I remember walking over to my grandparents' house and my grand just looking at me and saying, did you have a good time? And me telling her, yes. And I don't know why I said yes, but at that point in my life, I just felt like no matter what I said, nobody would believe me. Um, this was my father's best friend. Right. Um, my grandparents liked and admired this guy. He always did a lot of work around my grandparents' house. Um, I just felt like if I said anything that he would turn the story and nobody would believe me. And back then, like, I didn't know a lot of the facts that I know now. I didn't know that I could have been taken to the hospital. Um, they could have tested for DNA and things like that would have put him in jail. I didn't know those things. So I pretty much kept everything quiet. Um, and I kept it quiet for a very long time. Um, I remember talking a little bit about this before to people. Um, like I said, my father and him were best friends. And my dad was the type of guy that if he found out that anything happened to one of his children, especially his girls, he would have literally killed the other person. Literally, like no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Um, so me trying to protect my father, never told him until my dad, sadly, I'm going to start crying. I'm sorry. Okay. Take a, take a breath, take a break. Um, it's, you know, listening to you tell your story and just hearing the gruesome details. Um, and then just hearing what kind of person this was around 
your family and yourself. Um, just for it to be your dad's best friend is even more heartbreaking. Just for the simple fact that, you know, this is supposed to be somebody that you, you're you supposed to trust because it's your dad's friend. And you would yes. have any reason before this incident to believe that he would do something to harm you. And exactly. Like, I mean, he... I've known this guy for ever since I was little. Like, I was actually raised up until that point to think of him as my uncle. Right. Because of how close him and my father were. And after this incident, um, did you stop going over there? Or is it just kind of you stayed silent and just never brought it up again? Um, I still was around him. But I stopped wanting to spend the night over there unless there was other, like, more than just me and his daughter. Like, if there was a bigger group of kids that were staying there, then I felt more comfortable and things never happened then. And I think it's because there was more people around and more a higher chance of him to get caught or for somebody to say something. Um, however... Probably by the end of that year, his daughter and I had a falling out as well. And I pretty much decided that I didn't want to be friends with her anymore um, and stopped going over there. But like I said, I I still kept everything inside, didn't say anything to anybody. Um, like I was trying to get out and I apologize for getting so emotional. Um, but my father passed away in February of 2016 of a massive heart attack. And I remember finally feeling like I could get things off my chest mm -hmm. and I could tell him, um, let me backtrack a little bit. Um, when I was younger, I had a lot of anger issues. Um, a lot of behaviors. So everybody said, um, my parents did take me to counseling. Mm -hmm. um, I saw a psychiatrist when I was probably about 10 or 11 years old. Um, that psychiatrist diagnosed me with IED. I'm not sure if you're, if anybody's familiar with what that is, but it is intermittent explosive disorder. Um, it's where you basically, for no reason at all, just snap. And you blow up, you start breaking things, you start screaming at people, hitting people. You just want to hurt anything and anybody. Um, Are you I, diagnosed with that? What's that? How, how old were you when you were diagnosed with that? Um, between 10 and 11. Okay. Um, I was told that, my parents were told that I had that. Um, they were told that I had uh, PTSD and bipolar disorder. And my parents were questioning themselves over and over again of how I could have PTSD because nothing traumatic has ever happened to me. That they um, like I said, they had, that they know of exactly. Um, the biggest thing for me was the counselors that I saw and the psychiatrist himself. Like nobody wanted to peel the onion, so to speak. Yeah. Nobody wanted to get past that first layer to find out exactly what could be triggering or what could be causing these said behaviors that I had. They just wanted to automatically throw a diagnosis on it, put me on medication and be like, here you go. And send me on my way. And just, um, to, um, just really quick to touch on that part. Um, you know, cause my parents are, um, my dad is 53 now, or he's going to be 53 and my mom's in like late forties. And every time my dad, uh, or, you know, even his sister, who's a little bit older than he is talk about like mental health stuff. Like you couldn't say you were depressed back then. And, you know, like you said, just diagnosis thrown on pills. And that was the, the pill generation. Right. And exactly. Mike, okay, so my question for you is, did it ever come to a point where they were talking about institutionalizing you? Because I know that was another really big solution that, you know, I don't feel like was 
very healthy to, to do to people that were struggling. But did you ever get to a point uh, in, in your life and, you know, trauma when you were a kid that you had to be institutionalized for anything? Not when I was younger um, that I remember. I do know that I was in the hospital twice, but I wasn't on the mental health floor of the hospital that I'm aware of. Um, those two times, once I was nine years old and, well, I was between eight and nine. I don't think I was quite nine. It was not long after everything had happened. And that was my very first unalive attempt. Right. Um, I remember I found, there was like two or three different bottles of pills um, that were in my medicine cabinet. I don't even remember what they were. But I know that I dumped all of them out and took like at least two handfuls of whatever they were. Um, I remember right before I blacked out and then I remember waking up in a hospital. So I don't remember like the in-betweens. Right. Um, I don't even remember who found me um I just know that I didn't want to be there anymore um I remember being in the hospital for probably two or three days um and then probably when I was like 13 14 ish mm-hmm. was the second time that I attempted, um, that went a little bit further. I I was bullied in school for a lot of things. Um, I had behavior issues. I I was an overweight child. Um, and I think a lot of it just, I didn't really care what I looked like back then. Didn't really like try and make myself look decent. And I think it's just because I didn't want boys looking at me right um so I had a lot of people that you know said a lot of nasty things about me and that time I was in the school bathroom when I attempted then and it was with um I don't I'm not a I don't know how to like put it into words (laughs) um I tried slitting my wrist um I don't want to like throw all of this out there on people i'm sorry for no, doing no. that but, uh, um honestly um let me just hit the brakes on that just just really quick just to kind of like digest that for for yourself and for our listeners um i think these type these type of conversations um when it comes to suicide i i agree with trigger warnings very much Um, but I also agree with sharing details of what people go through, because if you're only going half, half into sharing your trauma or half into sharing, uh, your attempts, I feel you're not being a hundred percent yourself. I don't want to filter you. I don't want to nerf anything that you're saying. So I, I want you to go based on what you're comfortable with. If you don't feel comfortable sharing details, there is absolutely no pressure to, but I just want my listeners to know that anything that's shared on here at the beginning of every podcast, there is always your warning. So, you know, if you need a break from this part of the podcast, guys, please take that break. Um, because I know, especially for me who, um, uh, again, like yourself, I've had a few attempt on attempts, uh, on alive attempts as well, um, and was also uh, self harming at, at that age that you had your second mm. attempt. So, um, so going forward, uh, whatever you're comfortable with, and uh, go ahead and continue. But um, at that point in time, I remember one of my good friends. Um, I believe I was in ninth grade at that time, eighth or ninth grade. And I remember one of my friends coming into the bathroom and she actually 
saw what I was doing and was able to basically stop me from going any further to the point where I would have cut too deep. Mm -hmm. Um, Granted, I did cut, but it wasn't enough to end my life. And I, to this day, I'm eternally grateful for her um, because I don't think that that's really what I wanted. I just didn't want to feel the pain anymore. Absolutely. And I, and I believe that that's what it is for a lot of people that attempt or, you know, fulfill that. And I think it's just, it's not that they don't want to be here any longer. It's just that they don't want to feel that pain any longer. And that's, you know, and I think that's a really big misconception for so many people that don't understand uh, people that are suicidal or people that attempt. It's not a matter of you wanting to do it. Suicide is not an easy thing to do. You know, it's something that when we have gotten to that point, whether it's you, me, or anybody else has ever gotten to that point of wanting to unalive yourself. Um, it's nine times out of 10 because you're, we're so numb to the point of just wanting to feel something, just wanting that pain that the being the only thing that you know in pain that you just want to stop. And exactly. I just feel like there are too many people in this society, in this community that just don't take the time to understand uh people that are feeling suicidal exactly and that's like a big factor um that played into me holding out so long without telling anybody because I was afraid that like you said people don't want to take the time to really listen and really get to the reasoning behind everything um fast wording a little bit uh Like I said, my father passed away in February of 2016. And that was at the funeral home, standing there by his casket where his body laid was the first time that I felt comfortable enough coming out and telling him what happened. Um, Because I knew that I didn't have to protect my father anymore because he had already passed and that he wasn't going to, you know, be able to go and basically harm this other person because I know that, like I said, he would have no doubt killed him. Um, uh, just a quick question. Cause I don't remember if you said or not, is that the first time that you ever openly spoke of that incident or was there a time before that? It's honestly the first time that I openly spoke about it. Um, I never told my family anything. Like I said, I've been to counseling. I went to and saw a psychiatrist. Never even felt comfortable with the ones that I saw opening up to them because I felt like, honestly, I felt that they were all fake, um, that they were there just for a paycheck and not to really listen and want to know what I had to say because it seemed like every time I tried to talk, they interrupted um, and they were trying to put a label on everything. Yeah, and so. oh, to sorry. me, uh, I'm sorry about that. To me, there's like many people will know this. Like, I know that you've had the experience yourself. Like, it's so hard finding a therapist that you can trust, um, finding somebody that you feel comfortable enough opening up to. Um, I honestly didn't find that person until 2019. Um, And that's when I finally spoke to a therapist who wanted to get to the bottom and peel those layers and find out exactly what was going on. But um, backing up to when I was telling my father, like just standing there in the funeral home by myself, by his casket, talking to him and just telling him everything. I felt like a little bit of a weight was lifted off of my shoulder, but I still knew that I wanted the rest of my family to know, um, at least my mother. And I wanted my husband and my children to know. Um, 
my husband still doesn't know everything because long story short, he and I never really had like the best relationship, my husband and I. We make things work. I mean, we get along. But there's been many, many, many bumps. Um, and I just, I don't know. I feel like he's one of those people that would listen, but not really take it all in. Um, I did tell my mother after my father's funeral, probably like a week or two after, I did sit down with my mom and I explained everything to her. Um, and her and I had a crying fest and pretty much cried and got it all out together. Um, she asked me numerous times why I never felt comfortable coming to her beforehand. And I explained to her the reasonings why. And I mean, she kind of understood, um, kind of took it all in. And it's something that we don't really talk about anymore. Um, she doesn't bring it up. I don't bring it up around her. Um, and, oh, are you still there? I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. My yeah. phone just kind of glitched. I'm sorry. Um, but just kind of don't bring it up any longer. And the only person that I really find in my family that I'm comfortable talking to, if I'm being 100% honest, is my daughter. Yeah. Like, Raiden is my lifeline. Um, and I get emotional even talking about that because all of the stuff that I went through, like, I will honestly say that I was not the best mother um, when my kids were younger. I was literally to the point where I did commit myself to the mental health floor of a hospital for about a week um, because I felt like I was doing everything wrong. Um, and I did talk to doctors then, and they sort of started getting to the root of what was going on, right. but not everything. Mm -hmm. um, but I told them that I did experience trauma when I was a child. Um, didn't really go into detail of what the trauma was because I, again, did not feel 100% comfortable with them. But told them that because of those traumas and this is what I think a lot of people don't understand is when people are traumatized as a child that trauma doesn't go away it carries on with them throughout their whole entire life yep. um it factors into a lot of things that they do um like and I'm not trying to give people an excuse like people that do horrible things I'm not trying to give them that little excuse where they can use that and be like, oh, well, I was traumatized as a child. So that's why I did this. Um, so please don't take it that way. But I was borderline being abusive to my children. Um, I would yell at them, scream at them. Um, I've called my children names. Um, I remember one time before a cheer competition, uh, with my oldest daughter where she had her hair up in curlers and it was hurting her head and she didn't like it. And I remember yanking her hair and pulling all the curlers out of her hair. Um, not because I wanted to, but I had a lot of issues still going on in my brain. And now, thankfully, I'm at the point where I did ask my children forgiveness and I'm glad that, you know, her and I have a really, really good bond and a great relationship now. And I'm forever grateful for that. But it was hard. Um, and then, like I said, in 2019, I finally, I found a therapist that took my insurance. Um, that's another hard thing. It's finding somebody that does that. Um, found somebody, his name was Mike. And he was one of the greatest people ever. Like he's somebody that didn't jump straight into things. Um, he took his time. When you first, uh, when you first discovered him. 
What's that? I'm sorry. I said, I, I remember when you first discovered him. Yeah. Like, he took his time and he basically, like, like I said, using that metaphor again, killed the onion and kept going until he got to the root of the problem. And I finally broke down and I told him everything. Um, and he hooked me up with a psychiatrist that he worked very closely with. Um, I went and I saw the psychiatrist. And after pouring my heart out to the psychiatrist, he looked at me and he goes, what were all of the things that you were diagnosed with when you were younger? And I explained everything to him. And he goes, I don't believe you have all of those. And I was like, well, what is it that you think that I have, if anything? And he goes, you definitely, definitely have PTSD. He goes, but that's to be expected because of what you went through. Um, he goes, and you just explaining all the things that trigger you and things like, and different things like that. He goes, I'm definitely going to keep that as one of your diagnoses. He goes, but I also think that there's some other things in there too. Um, I'm not going to get into all of the things that I've been diagnosed with, but he, as far as the IED, um, he flat out said that there was no reason that I should have been diagnosed with that, put on medication for that. Um, he said that children a lot of times will act out like that when things have happened in their life because it's their way of trying to get attention and get that focus on them so somebody will ask them what's wrong. Um, 90% of the time, people will not ask their children what's wrong. And they won't sit down and listen to their children. Um, and I'm telling everybody now, like, if you see a child who is acting out, who is, you know, doing things that are grabbing your attention, take that focus, focus on them, sit down with them and just listen. I honestly, I wish that, I wish that I had somebody that just came up to me when I was younger and said, hey, what's going on, you know? talk to me. I'm here to listen. I, you know, want to know what's going on with you. I won't judge you. I won't think badly of you. Just tell me what's wrong. Because a lot of times, even with adults today, um, it's not just children. It's with anybody. I honestly think that so many people want to jump the gun and point fingers and say oh this person's crazy or this person you know is just doing this for attention because you know they have to have all that focus on them you know they have to be an attention whore whatever when ultimately they just need somebody to listen right and that's like a big big thing for me like I tell people all the time I you ever need somebody to vent to you need somebody to you know rant to ramble on to even if you don't want me to say a word, I'm always here. I'm always here to listen because I wish I had that in my life when I was growing up. But Can you still hear me? Yeah. Okay. Um, I was just going to say, uh, just wanted to touch on a couple, couple different things. Um, one of the biggest things I want to touch on is the generation that, that raised my, uh, my parents and uh, the parents that raised you, the parents that raised you and that generation and, you know, their parents. Um, I feel like there, there was just that long line of just like rub dirt in a generation and just don't talk about your problems. Don't talk about your relationship stuff. And I just, I genuinely yeah. feel that there are way too many people that choose to be silent about their struggles instead of sharing it. And when it comes to, <clears throat> when it comes to them having kids, uh, you know, like yourself, you were surviving for a really long time and you expressed that um, you were going through a hard time. And when you had kids, you took out uh, the trauma and stuff that you were dealing with out on them unintentionally. So um you, you mentioned uh, a statement or you said a statement that kind of really resonated with me. And it's just kind of like a, 
you know, there, there's the childhood trauma, you know, carries on as an adult and it doesn't ever really truly go away. Um, there's things that I remember from when I was four years old that I probably shouldn't remember being 31 now, you know, it's, I, I can definitely agree that childhood trauma carries with you probably for the rest of your life. But I also want to point out that healing is always possible and how you take that trauma and how you turn that trauma into something positive is 100% possible for everybody. And exactly, you being able to share your story and talk about your experiences, uh, I think is probably the biggest way that anybody can can possibly heal is talking about this stuff. You know, like like yesterday, um, when a loss happens in my life, um, when Amy first passed away, um, I didn't know how to deal with it because she was the biggest loss I've had in my life since my grandfather, and I was six, so. You don't really remember death being that young, right? Um, and then fast forward to yesterday, talking about that grief, talking about that loss that I experienced that impacted me and the childhood trauma that you went through and the PTSD that it gave you. Um, I feel like so many people are afraid what others are going to think of them that they just never share their story. They never talk about their trauma and thus they never heal. So being that you went through um, a couple different different therapists, right? If I'm not mistaken, there was Mike, and I think there was like maybe two more after. There was a couple after him. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, the ones after him, just they never. I never really like stayed with them. Right. Um, just for the simple fact that I kind of put Mike on a pedestal, um, and if people can't match up to the way that I felt when I was talking to him it's gotten me to the point where I don't really want to stay with them I don't want to talk to them and I kind of find myself closing out and closing off um, and then just never really going back to them again right and you know I think you know that kind of goes with uh what you were saying when you were younger when you saw a psychiatrist that none of them really seemed to want to go past the first layer of your trauma to get to the root of, uh, yeah. of your trauma. And, um, you know, Sydney, one of my former guests, uh, pointed out something that has sat with me since we recorded. And ever since then, when people talk about therapy and, and going to, uh, get medication and all that stuff. Um, and she said, most doctors want to, don't want to treat the, the cause they just want to treat the symptom and i feel that way with therapists i feel that way with psychiatrists and i feel there are way too many uh i say this word and i don't even know if it's a word uh disgenuine people um disingenuous i, I think is the right word right something like that yeah and, um, <laughs> i gotcha yeah you get what i'm saying <laughs> um <laughs> And I, and I just feel there's too many people in this field, particularly when it comes to content creators, when it comes to podcasters, when it comes to therapists, there are too many people looking for a paycheck and not looking to actually help people. When I first started the group and first started the podcast, I had no idea where I wanted it to go. Um, I know like long-term where I would like to be, but you know, short-term, I didn't want to make money off of people's trauma. I, I didn't want to make money off of sharing other people's stories on my platform. So I wish there were more therapists out there that would sit with their clients. And, you know, even if there was a possibility, I know there's some therapists that offer like a first free session, but it's like 30 minutes. I wish every therapist did that just to see if there's a fit. And yeah, I know most kind people- of like a where you can go, you know, to a clothing store and you can try clothes on you know and if right. they don't fit you you can return them to the rack exactly yeah it'd be nice if you could do that with therapist or psychiatrist or doctors or anybody honestly and, and unfortunately with that idea too is you know you don't know if a therapist is going to work until usually like a month after you start seeing them um, yeah 
because I know certain friends like my friend Keisha, who, you know, was the fiance of Santi, had to go like every two weeks because, you know, that loss was tremendously impactful on her life as as it was everybody else. But she's never dealt with something that heavy and had to go every two weeks. And most people in today's economy can't afford that. And the insurance thing, like you mentioned, I know is a really big problem when it comes to getting help. Um, for anybody that tunes into this episode and anybody who's looking to get help for themselves, um, from somebody who's been in therapy consistently for almost three years, I, I just, I want to express that if you're looking for therapy and you want to actually put in the work for healing, and I know a lot of people struggle putting in that work, make sure you ask those questions. I say every podcast ask questions to those therapists because like like judy said you know it's it's hard to find a really good therapist that isn't doing it for just what can i prescribe you today kind of mentality so uh exactly and that's like when i was younger all of the ones that i went to back then that seems like that's all they wanted to do was put a label on something and be like here's your pills have a good day you know right I feel like a lot of people in today's society also like to do the self-labeling thing. I don't know if you've experienced that or have seen it yourself, but I feel like people just kind of slap these phrases on themselves and say, oh, well, I'm this or I'm going to treat you like this because I have this kind of thing. Have you ever experienced that uh, in your circle or work environment? I have. um, And it's sad because knowing what I've been through in my life. And I'm not saying that other people haven't been through, you know, different things in their life and stuff. But if you are not like properly diagnosed by a doctor, don't sit there and go to people and be like, oh, that's just my bipolar coming through. (laughs) Or, you know, that's my other personality coming out of me when you're acting, you know, different. Like, because you could be talking to somebody who's, gone through that shit and like you're sitting there and basically making fun of of them and mocking them exactly and for some people I mean that can even be a trigger that's going to send them into you know a downside of their depression or their bipolar or you know speaking from experience like I have bipolar um when I go into those low days, like it's not easy to pull yourself back out of them. And somebody, if somebody would say that to me, like, Oh, don't mind me. It's just my bipolar coming out. Like that's something that can trigger somebody. Yeah. It's something that can trigger anybody and put them automatically into those low days where they're like, Oh, you know, they think that it's funny. They think that it's a joke and they don't understand, you know, what I've been through and what I deal with on a daily basis. Um, and it's just not something that you should do. I, I completely agree. And, you know, um, I just kind of wanted to to share a little something. Uh, this was kind of unplanned. That I, de- I definitely don't want to take the focus away from the point of uh, this podcast, but I just really quick, uh, I won't make it a very long uh, piece of this podcast at all, but, you know, I just... At the very beginning of the podcast, you know, we mentioned that it's, you know, women go through sexual assault uh, more oftentimes than they ever should. Right. And I I also feel like they're in the same breath. There are men that don't speak out about it. And I feel like there is a lot of instances. When I was about four years old, uh, we lived in an apartment complex in Clearwater. And uh, there was this nine, nine, 10-year-old girl who lived across uh, like the walkway in our apartment complex. Her name was, uh, I'm going to change her name. Just, I got you on that one. <laughs> um, her name was Julie. Um, and we would hang out all the time. We were like best friends. And she had this little tent that was like on her porch that, you know, we would always like coloring books, everything like that. And uh one day, you know, we, we started hanging out in the tent more often times than not. And uh, 
she was showing me things uh, at the age of four that somebody four years old should never have to like experience. Um, again, yeah. I don't want to take the focus away from this podcast because this is about you, not me. But um, no, you're not taking the focus away at all. Like, I think that it needs to be said that, you know, it's not just women that experience like sexual abuse, sexual assault, anything like that. Like it can absolutely happen to men. And, and you know, um when she was showing me these things, you know, growing up as a young man and kind of experiencing bullying like yourself and just dealing with all the things that I was dealing with, you know, that didn't come with a lot of relationships, if any. And it it, it kind of it warps your mind when you go through uh you know, those kind of experiences because you don't know how to cope with it. You don't know how to deal with everyday life outside of what you have experienced within that trauma. And, you know, the things that happen in that tent are burned in the back of my brain. And it wasn't until about maybe six months ago that I actually was able to share this with my therapist and, you know, being 31, uh, you know, it took me 30 years or not 30 years. It took me 26 years to even speak about it. So, you know, yeah, I commend you for being able to speak about your experience just in general. And I wish more, more women and more men would speak out about it and, you know, people wouldn't shame them for it. Cause I feel there's way too many silent people when it comes to, to this subject. Um, just you know and i understand because it's such a traumatic experience and it's not easy to talk about because you feel like you're the one that did something wrong um absolutely um touching on that just a little bit um things that you were saying there when you were telling a little bit of you know what happened to you if i may um when you were saying about coping and finding ways to like deal with that. That takes me back to my teenage years. Um, I was called a slut and a whore numerous times because I was somebody who I did sleep around and it didn't really matter who it was with. And I think in a sense, that was my way of coping with things um, just because I didn't really care. Um, and that's just basically using, I don't even know how to put it into words. Basically um, using your childhood trauma to try and move forward without still suffering, I guess. Something along those lines. Yeah. Like it's just a way of trying to drown out the pain and drown out like those memories in your head. Like, so many people like they don't understand even with like with people who turn to you know drugs and other kinds of addictions like for me honestly sex was my addiction and it's just something that helped me erase those memories and those flashbacks and like basically movie that was replaying over and over again in my brain it helped keep that at bay and keep it you know erased so I didn't have to relive it over and over again so um go ahead sorry no and at that point in time like yeah granted men made me like uncomfortable but for some reason during those times it felt like it was the right thing to do and I don't like know how to put into words why it was like that yeah um i i think and, and this is just kind of like a, a perspective of why i think uh you know it, it turned into that and i think it was just because the memory was so painful you wanted to replace it with something that you thought felt good it's kind of like like you said it's kind of like a drug it's that temporary feel-good moment it was uh you know uh releasing the the hurt within your heart even if it wasn't healing you 100 it was just like 
I feel good for this amount of time. And, you know, you're not thinking about anything else. Right. Um, for me. Um, and, and again, this is something I never thought I would bring up on the podcast. Cause it was really hard for me to bring up uh, uh, in therapy. Um, I posted about it in the group, but I'll, I'll say it on the podcast since it's, this is the subject. Um, for me, after that experience, um, the very first rated R movie that I ever saw was Basic Instinct. And for anybody that doesn't know that movie, it is a very sexual movie. Yeah. And it is a very brutal movie. And for me, um, going through what I went through and having that not knowing how to cope through it as a young kid going into teenage years, it turned me... Uh, it, it kind of developed into being hypersexual, like, like, like you said yourself. And it, it formed an addiction that was really hard to break, uh, you know, and without going into any specifics, it was a way to temporary feel good. It was a way to forget that everything around the world, uh, everything else around me was causing me pain. And like yourself, um, it, it was something that you couldn't understand why you kept doing it, even though it was always only temporary, but it was like a drug. And for anybody who will be listening to this podcast, I, I want to express to you guys, being hypersexual is a very difficult thing to deal with because it's not one of those things where it's just like only between the hours of X, Y, Z. It's it's literally from the moment you wake up to the second you go to sleep that it's just your brain is always just twisting and turning in ways that you don't want it to. And the, first, the first step for me, I didn't mean to cut you off. I'm sorry about that. No, no, no. I was just agreeing with what you were saying about the, from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to sleep thing. And, you know, the hardest thing was talking about it with my therapist and when I shared it on the group, I honestly expected people to tear me down, to bash me for having a platform for whatever. And surprisingly, really supportive uh, talking about it. So <clears throat> for anybody who goes through this, man, um, please find somebody that you trust enough to speak out. It doesn't have to be right away. It doesn't have to be a week after whatever happened. Just get that demon off of your back so it doesn't consume your heart full of pain. Because I feel there are too many people in this world that just can't handle the pain and unalive themselves. And I don't I don't want it to get to that point for anybody else. <clears throat> And uh, Judy, I just, from the bottom of my heart, I just want to say thank you for being strong enough to uh, to talk about this because uh, shit wasn't easy for me to talk out loud about. Yeah, um, like I told you, even leading up to this podcast, like my nerves were all over the place. And I, right up until the point where we first got on to start recording I wasn't even sure if I'd be able to go through with it so I thank you and I appreciate you so much for always making me feel comfortable enough to talk with you about things absolutely absolutely I, I feel like that's the number one thing guys is if you want to be there for somebody like genuinely want to be there for somebody don't offer advice don't offer a solution unless they ask for it. Let them tell their piece. Make them as comfortable as possible. And let them share their heart with you because there are way too many people who offer unsolicited advice that either don't know better or are just too full of ego to let somebody share their story and be vulnerable. Um, 
before we get to the end of the podcast, was there any anything else that you wanted to share with uh, with our listeners? Um, I do have a couple things that like little quotes that ever since things have happened to me are basically my little lifelines. Um, things that I always try to live by. And the biggest one that I find I always turn to is that I'm not what happened to me. I am what I choose to become. Um, I'm not a victim. I'm a survivor. And that's one thing that I will take with me to my grave. Like, I will never, ever, ever allow myself to feel like I'm a victim ever again. Um, basically from the day that I told my dad what was going, what happened to me, like from that day forward, I wanted to push myself to start surviving instead of basically just moseying on throughout my life. Yeah. Um, I, I love I love both of those quotes very much. Um, the second one really resonates with me because so many people are so quick to jump to the toxic victimhood and don't want to look at it as their survivor of their trauma. Um, but go ahead. I, I didn't mean to cut you off. <clears throat> no, no, no. You're okay. Um, I was just saying, like, even to this day, like, my whole focus has totally changed um, ever since I started taking that quote to heart and realizing that, you know, what happened to me was not my fault um, and realizing that, you know, he was the monster. I was just somebody that he played out his little role on, basically. Um, none of it was my fault. And now I want to push myself forward I mean do I still have bad days absolutely but my main focus now is I want to help as many people as I can like I want to be there for as many people as I can um and I even right now like that's a career goal that I'm going down like I want to be a youth advocate. I want to be a counselor or a, you know, psychologist or something for children and for adolescents. And I want to be somebody that will listen to them and somebody that I didn't have. Right. Um, somebody that will peel those layers and, you know, work with them and get to the bottom of things and find out why they might be, you know, experiencing the behaviors or, these thoughts or anything that they're experiencing. Absolutely. And, you know, I think it's important that we bring up, bring up the youth and adolescent uh, part of this too, because we're getting to a point where we shouldn't have to be worrying about this, but we're at a, a point where now suicide numbers and kids are, are starting to climb and it's heartbreaking. Um, how many kids have to go through that pain and not have that support. So we definitely need more people in this community geared towards kids. And I hope that there is better resources out there today than when I got help uh, when I was younger. So um, I hope whatever journey you end up pursuing um, ends up, you know, being everything that you want it to be. Cause I think, uh, I think the absolute world of you. I appreciate that so much. And the feeling's mutual. Like, I feel like you are one of the greatest people and the greatest influences in my life. So I thank you. Thank you. I greatly appreciate that. Um, so at the end of every podcast, as you know, um, I like to to read quotes that I find that, um, that has something to do with the subject that we're talking about. Um, and I found one today from a, a Miss Dawn Sarah, and it reads, there is no time stamp on trauma. There isn't a formula that you can insert yourself into to get from horror to healed. Be patient. Take up space. Let your journey be the bomb. I think that was uh, 
one of the most powerful quotes I think I've I found when it comes to talking about trauma. Yeah. Um, and again, guys, if you need any resources, the sexual assault hot- hotline is one 800 656 4673 or you can find them on the trinova website um again thank you guys so very much for your support and again judy thank you so very much for being on today's podcast and sharing your story i thank you for giving me the opportunity and having me so absolutely um until next time guys again thank you for your support and as always be well and be gentle with yourselves take care